Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. Today is, the reason why I'm preaching is today is Speed the Light Sunday. Um, anyone in here, does, do you know what Speed the Light is? Raise your hand if you know what Speed the Light is. Okay, good, good. Some of y'all know it because you've been involved with CT and the, age, the assemblies for a long time. Others of you know it because I have your students and youth, and I pester them about it. We pester them about it every Wednesday night. Um, and so Speed the Light is the youth's arm in missions giving in the assemblies of God. It's the youth's Youth arm. The kids have BGMC, which I think today is BGMC Sunday, right? Everyone's got their BGMC shirts on. Um, and so Speed the Light is the youth arms. And so Speed the Light provides uh, uh, essential transportation and creative communication for our missionaries. And so I always tell the students this. Um, it's y'all's job to, for the bulk of it to help the missionaries get there because we support missionaries and getting them out to the field, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. It's the student's job, and today it's going to be your opportunity to help them do what they do better. Because, and I have a missionary friend, and I know him, I know his heart, I know that his heart is to see people's lives change with the gospel. And so I know that while he's out on the mission field, he's not going to let not from going and preaching the gospel. He's going to do it. But he can do it better if he has a sound system behind him or a car to get him there quicker. And so that's what Speed the Light is all about. It is equipping our missionaries to do what they do better. You know, uh, to, today I've titled the sermon, uh, Build a Bigger Table. And so that's what we're talking about today, building a bigger table. I had a, in high school, uh, my first car was a 1997, let me see if I remember this right, Ford Lincoln Mountaineer something else. Um, any of y'all remember that car? It's like a little SUV kind of thing, and I loved it. Like, it was so cool because it was my first car. And I had it for about a month. And it's not because I totaled it or I had an accident. It's because it was so unreliable. I, so I went to school 20 minutes away from where we lived. We lived out, we lived, my parents still live there, live out in the country. Um, and uh, so the school I went to was 20 minutes away. So when I started driving, I was driving 20 minutes as a 16-year-old by myself to school, because out in the country, everybody, once you turn 16 year old, years old, you get your license and you start driving, because your parents are tired of driving you around everywhere you want to go. So they're like, here, here's your license, here's the keys, go, just go. And so uh, I've learned, that is something that blows my mind. Like, when you live in the city, students just don't get licenses at 16. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm good, they live down, everyone lives down the street, I don't need a car to go anywhere, and I'm like, Dude, when I was 16, I wanted to go, go, go. Like, I did not want to sit around at home or, like, walk anywhere. So that's such a difference to me. But uh, so I, I had this car for about a month, and my mom was like, it's so unreliable. She was, it terrified her, me driving home at nights from practice and games and such. So she was like, I'm going to get you, we're getting you a different car. And that was my mom. She's like, I want you to be safe, so we're going to get you a different car. So we went car shopping, and my mom, my mom went car shopping. I kind of sat around and did whatever. And... Uh, she came back, and she was like, hey, we're going we're gonna to go look at a car today. I was like, all right, let's go. So we, we pull up to the car dealership, and she's like, yeah, that's the car we're looking at. And it's a beautiful 2005 red Mustang. It was the first year of the, new, of the newer. Now, this was 2010, so it wasn't, like, brand new. And so, uh, 
or it was like 2008. So it wasn't brand new, um, but it was beautiful. And I was like, dude, let's go. Like, this is so cool. And so like during the whole process, and so we got the car and I'm driving. I love that car to death. Like that was my baby. Um, I ended up totaling it years later. Um, we're not, we're not going to talk about that. But uh, needless to say, it was on 410, the 41035 interchange. You know, if you're coming 410 from, like, Rigsby, and you're coming around, you're getting on 35, going downtown. Like, right when you get on to 35, I moved over to the left lane, and about 200 yards later, I hit a car. And so needless to say, traffic was terrible, and uh, I saw a lot of specific fingers that morning. People were not happy with me. And you know what the funny thing was? I saw a lot of people from church that I used to go to church with, and they drove by me and were like, and I was like, what are y'all doing? Why are you waving? Like, stop, help me out here. Like, what are you doing? Anyways, but so uh, we had, at the, at the high school I went to, we had a baseball field, and it was down back behind the football field, so you had to go down back a little road around the, the locker rooms to get back to it. Like, now, like, they've built it up, and it's really nice. Of course, after I left, they made it really nice. But uh, you had to drive this little dirt road back to the baseball field. And so when you park down at the baseball field, the dirt road stopped, and it just, you just parked in the grass. And so, you know, there's a little grass out there. And so one day before baseball season, some buddies, me and some buddies, were like, hey, we're going to go throw. We're going to get ready for the season. We're going to start preparing. We're going to get our arms ready. And so we drive down there, and uh, it's just, it, it rained a couple days earlier, so everything's still wet. And we're like, you know what? We're not going to go out there. We're not going to ruin the field. We're not going to get all muddy and tear it up. So we'll, just, we'll wait. We'll wait for tomorrow if it dries out. And uh, we go to leave, and my buddy pulls out first. Remember, it's all like dirt, so now it's all like light mud. He pulls out in his little Dodge car, and he starts spinning. The cool thing was he's throwing mud up like 30 feet in the air because we're in little cars, so we're like, you know, trying to get out, and so we're not wanting to get stuck, so we're, we're, so we're just like gliding over the mud, and we're throwing mud in the air, so I'm like, that looks like fun. So I get in my car, and I'm like, let's go, and so I do the same thing. I get out in the mud, and I start going, well, I'm, you know, we're just throwing mud, so we're getting out, recording each other, doing it, you know, we're having fun, and I pull, we're pulling them back up the dirt road, and we get to the locker rooms, and there's three of the maintenance staff standing there. And there's a gate that you got to get through to get back there. So they're standing there, and they have the gate closed, and they're just like, so upset. So we pull up, and we're just like, we both, our, our hearts sing. We're just like, oh, my goodness, we are dead. We are dead meat. <laughs> and so, uh, so they were like, all right, can we just like, it was just an awkward moment. And so they open the gate. They let us out. And uh, I deserved to get in a ton of trouble at school the next day but I got off with a slap on the wrist. I was so stinking lucky. Part of it being lucky was because uh, the buddy I went down there with, um, his dad was the president of the school board. So that made it pretty easy to get off with a slap on the wrist because, you know, you know people. Um, But I didn't get close to what I deserved that day. And so in... Thinking of, when I was thinking about this story and I was putting it in there, I was like, you know, I don't even think my parents know about this. I don't think I've ever told my parents about this. And so we moved my sister into school this weekend and uh, into college, and we moved her in. My mom, oh, my goodness, she's a baby. 
So, like, when I moved into school, like, she took, like, we went to a Rangers game because I went up to Waxahachie, just south of Dallas. Went up to a Rangers game, had fun. It was all about me. You know, my, when my other sister moved, moved into school there, all about her. My youngest sister, the baby, my mom was like, hey, we're all going to go. Everybody, my sister's married, so her and her husband, me and Courtney and Everly, we're all going. We're all doing the whole thing, the whole nine yards, and we're going to make shirts. So, like, we had all these shirts. Like, we made shirts. We sat with a little cricket and made shirts and this and that. And, like, if people were like, oh, that's so cute because we're all wearing matching shirts. And I was like, I feel so lame right now. <laughs> I feel so lame. But we were, talk- we were up late talking, and so I asked my mom. And my dad had already gone to bed, and we were all up late. And I said, hey, talking about stuff that you don't know because we kind of go on a conversation. And I was like, do you know about this time, you know, we went mudding and almost got in, like, you know, really big trouble and stuff. And she was like, no, I didn't know about that. Then she began to tell me things that I didn't know nor ever wanted my mom to know about me. So that made for a really fun night. I had, I had originally put it in my notes, you know, I don't think my parents know about the story. Well, then I asked them after I typed this up and she knew and, and, and things got worse for me. <laughs> well, we're not going to go there. Sometimes in life, it seems like we get exactly what we deserve. Other times, it seems like things are better than we deserve or worse than we deserve. Some people think they deserve an easy life or a bright future or a healthy family. But why? What do we really deserve? Do we even want what we deserve? In other words, is getting what you deserve a good thing? Is hoping in karma the best way to live? Today we're going to look at a story where an outcast didn't get what he deserved, and it ultimately was really good news for him. And it actually reminds us of the good news for both you and me. If you have your Bibles with you or you got your phone app, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Give you all a second. I was smart. I put my sermon notes in the Bible so I don't have to turn there already. I'm already there. If you don't have your Bible or your phone, it's behind me on the screen. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And you've got to know this is interesting in this first line. This is interesting. You want to know why? Because it was common at the time for the king to kill all of the male offspring of the former king. Not only that, Saul was David's greatest enemy. So it was also common at the time for a king to kill all of the male offspring of his greatest, of of his enemies. Right? So I just wanted to, I just want to preface that. I just wanted you to know that. Like, him asking this is extremely uncommon. Is he should be asking, where is he so I can kill him? Verse 2. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mater, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. 
interesting, Lodabar is a place for the outcasts. It's a place for the outlaws to go and hide out. You know, I think of like, I love Alaska. I want to visit Alaska. Like, I think Alaska is the coolest place. But I've always heard Alaska is where outlaws go because no one looks. No one thinks to go find them or no one wants to go find them out in the wilderness of Alaska because they're like, they'll probably just stay by themselves anyways. So Lodabar is this kind of place where it's a trashy place. Not say Alaska is a trashy place. Alaska's beautiful. Okay, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, but it's where outlaws go and hide. It's where people who don't want to be found go. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Okay, if I say this name wrong, I've been practicing it and practicing it and practicing it, so bear with me. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, see, I'm getting it wrong already. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore you to all the, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul And to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. So in 1 Samuel chapter 2, David made a promise to Jonathan, I'm going to take care of your offspring. Okay, so he made a promise to Jonathan. If you don't know, David and Jonathan were very close. Jonathan was the son of Saul, and they were very, very close. They were very close friends. And so this is 18 years after King Saul died and David has stepped in. And if you didn't realize while you were reading along, Scripture makes a very clear characteristic of Mephibosheth. He's crippled. If you didn't understand that. It says it, I believe, three times in the text that he is crippled. It's almost like that's his identity. It's almost like that's who he is. And I'm sure after living for being crippled his whole life, he knew himself as a cripple. How many labels and identities do we give ourselves? Whether it's he's weird, she's quiet, they look funny, she's anxious, They're crippled, they're single, they're unsuccessful, they're poor. How many times do we put labels on ourselves that then become our identities? That becomes who we are. That becomes who we think we are. See, Mephibosheth's identity wasn't because he was born that way. He was dropped as a baby. 
As a baby, he was dropped, so that's why he became crippled. It was something that was put on him. And not only that, imagine the other things he had in his life. He was an orphan. His dad's dead. His grandpa's dead. I'm sure the rest, most of all the family he has is dead. He has no family. He has no future. He has no wealth. He has nothing to him. And I'm sure in the eyes of many, Mephibosheth didn't deserve anything. He deserved nothing. And I can't help but wonder if he thought the same thing in his eyes. He thought the same thing about himself because of the label that other people put on him. How often do we allow ourselves to be labeled and that becomes our identity? That becomes who we are and ultimately it drags down our self-worth and it changes who we are. As you remember, I mentioned at the beginning of reading David had every right in the then-known world because that's what kings did. So to them, he had the right to kill Mephibosheth, right? Because that's, that's what you did. That's how it worked. That's how it worked in those days is all the male offspring. See you later. But David didn't do that. Instead, he flipped the script and he did three things. The first thing, he calls him by name. what that does is it establishes Mephibosheth's identity and his worth. See, the king then didn't need to know anyone's names. They were his servants, and that's all that mattered. He didn't need to know your name, Kevin. He didn't care. He shouldn't have cared. It should have been no big deal for him to just say, hey, one of my servants, come here. Right? Shouldn't have been a big deal. He didn't need to know his name, and yet he did. Second thing he did is he gives them land. Land in that day is wealth. You were wealthy, you had land. So basically what King David does is he brings him in. He says, here, I'm going to load up your bank account. You're going to have wealth. You're going to have servants. You're going to have land to till. You're going to have produce to bring in, crops to bring in that you can sell, and you're going to be wealthy now. So he says, here you go, come on in, I'm going to take care of you. And the third thing that he does is he invites him to take all his meals at the king's table. The king's table was a very, very special place. It was left for royalty and special guests. Who is royalty under the king? His family, right? So basically in this moment, David is saying, you know what, Mephibosheth, You have lived in the junk, you've lived in the trashy places, but you know what, I'm going to take you in, and I'm going to adopt you as one of my sons. It's not enough to say, hey, you know what, your name's Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you some land, I'm going to give you what belonged to your family, here you go, buddy, like, go off. Mephibosheth could have lived a great life not eating at the king's table. He'd have been like, dude, this is cool, let's go, right? But David didn't stop there, he said, you're going to eat your meals with me. And so with that, it's almost like David adopted him. Maybe God isn't looking for perfect people to come and sit at the table, but people who are broken, lost, and in need of a Savior. People who don't deserve to sit at the the table. People who are his enemy, the worst of the worst, considered a dead dog. God isn't looking for perfect people to sit at the table. 
I think this, this story rings true to us today because, there's, like I said, there's so many times we put on ourselves an identity or a label, and it becomes who we are. I'm not worthy, and I'm not deserving of anything. You know, to be honest, we're not. We're not. But God isn't looking for perfect people. I think the last line of the story, and it, st- it stood out. The last line says, now he was lame in both feet. Why do you think at the end of the story, it's already doing, saying all these great things that, the, that have happened that David's doing for his life, he includes, now he was lame in both feet. What is the point of including that? I think it shows that we don't have to fix ourselves to sit at the table. Mephibosheth didn't have to get braces on his legs to walk. He didn't have to make himself look good. He didn't have to get the most special wheelchair of the time that's got all the bejazzled duels, jewels, 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 blinging around on his wheels, make him look fancy. He just had to come sit at the table. He was still broken. He was still messed up. He just had a spot at the table. Think about this. King David, at his own expense, at his own expense, invited Mephibosheth to eat at his table. At his own expense. It wasn't like, hey, you're gonna, I'm going to give you land and wealth, you're going to produce food, and then you're going to bring that food so we can eat it. It was like, hey, you're going to produce it, you're going to be wealthy, but then you're going to eat at my table. At his own expense, he said, I'm going to feed you the rest of my life. Anyone in here have kids? Anyone in here know what it's like to feed a bunch of kids? Yeah, y'all know what it's like to feed kids and it costs money at the grocery store, right? Yeah, it ain't cheap to buy food for people. Y'all, I got one kid and I'm like, dear Lord, my kid eats. My kid's a good eater. I'm going to brag my kid. My kid is a great eater. She's a phenomenal kid. I'm just saying. She really is. Um, man, that girl eats. Man, it ain't cheap to feed her. It's, I got one. Romans 5, 8, and 10 talks about how we are enemies to God. Before Jesus died. It says we are enemies to God. Jesus came and he sacrificed his life for us at his own expense. He has already invited you to the table. God is calling us to a table that we don't deserve to sit at. We just need to come to it. It's about creative communication too. God's greatest commandment is to love him and then love one another. With so many different cultures in the world, it's going to look different for every person. And we can't expect people who have never heard about Jesus to just walk into a church building. That's why it's so important to connect with people in meaningful ways. With missionaries around the world, they're dealing with thousands of different cultures. And with each people group that they're reaching and each individual that they reach, they need to communicate creatively the gospel. 
Creative communication gives access to the tools that people need to get connected to the gospel. And this is what Speed the Life does. One of the coolest things Speed the Light can provide is vehicles. I mean, I know you're thinking, hey, I'm 16. I want a vehicle. But think about it this way. For these missionaries, a car is not a want. It's a necessity. To these missionaries, they have to take it as it comes. As they're out there, there could be emergencies. There could be people who need help right then and there. They themselves are putting themselves in danger. Traveling in these villages, anything could happen. The crazy thought about that, there's people out there that don't have technology they don't have a phone, they don't have a car to get back. What would happen if they were in a medical emergency? Or worse, they were in a medical emergency and hadn't heard the gospel. I didn't even know if I wanted to do anything with missions, but being able to have those experiences, being able to reach these people, man, God just changed my life. those two videos when I saw them and I was like, you know, I'm going to show them. But I mentioned earlier that today is Speed the Light Sunday. And Speed the Light is all about assisting missionaries and helping them to be more effective at what they're doing. Behind me, you see uh, South Texas um, Speed the Light needs. These are all missionaries in South Texas that need a vehicle or need equipment um, to be more effective in what they're doing around the world. Some of them are abroad. Some of them are here at home. Um, and some of them are national parks, like you see Convoy of Hope providing a trailer. We all know Convoy of Hope. We all know how Convoy of Hope is, is extremely effective in what they're doing, but they need trailers. They need help being more effective at what they're doing. Is Convoy of Hope not going to be in Florida this weekend? No, they're going to be there. They're going to be there by the truckloads. But if they didn't have the trucks and trailers, they'd still be there. They just wouldn't be as effective. Just like I said, our missionaries, they're going to be there. They're going to do whatever it takes to get to the lost. But let's help them get there quicker. Instead of a four-day journey by foot over the mountains, why not drive there in a couple hours? You know? Like, that's just that many more days that they get to spend there. That's that many more days that they can go spend the same four days there instead of spending four days there walking, four days there and eight days back. Now they spend four hours there and they're there for four days. They come back and now they're being more effective at what they're doing. In the AG alone, Assemblies of God, we have over 2,700 missionaries throughout the world. In South Texas alone, we have 70 plus missionaries. And what makes us Pentecostal empowers us to be evangelistic. What makes us Pentecostal and the fact that we allow the Holy Spirit to move and work causes, causes us, it should cause us to be evangelistic. And some are going to take that and they're going to say, I'm going to go. And then there's other, others of us that say, I really don't want to go, Lord, but I'm going to help send. And I'm going to help assist them. 
And I'm going to take care of our missionaries that are going out and spreading the gospel. Because what they're doing is they're creating opportunities for people all over the world, a chance to sit at God's table. They're providing them a chance to be called a son or a daughter of the one true king. That's what they're doing. And that's what Speed the Light does. It says, you know what, we're going to help you do it. You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210-657-3578.